please turn with me to the book of Hebrews in the Pew Bible. Um, this is uh, page 1006, and I'll be reading uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, but referencing verses nearby this text as well. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. Look for the weakness of the old covenant way of doing things, Look for the provision that God has given in Jesus and look for the promise that we'll see in verse 10 that is truly a remarkable thing. The problem, the provision, and the promise. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, said, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and enlarge our hearts to grasp this. One of the blessings that uh, I've experienced over these last several months as uh, Gail's mom has been with us is from time to time they would talk about stories of when Gail was growing up and thus and such happened. And, uh, and one, of, one of my favorites uh, is, uh, is that Gail, Gail grew up um, on, uh, at the top of the hill um, overlooking Weems Creek. Now, a creek in southern Maryland terms is not a little bubbling brook. Uh, this Weems Creek was about 200 yards across. And it was plenty large enough for Gail to grow up on a little old motorboat and skiing behind this motorboat, enough to turn circles right there in front of the house. A substantial little creek uh, it was. Um, And uh, she got got an annual winter uh, lecture that that was something like this. um, Don't go out on the ice. Can you imagine a mother making a request such as that? Well, uh, as I said, Gail's house was up on the top of the hill, and there was a nice sledding 
slot between the trees, uh, heading heading down to the uh, heading down to the to the to the creek, and I think you know where this is going. And she's on that she's she's on that on that on that sled, and she's zooming down that hill. She does not have time to stop, so she goes out into the into Weems Creek that is covered over in ice. She gets off her sled and gingerly tries to get back to shore without being caught. Of course, she goes through the ice. Obviously, she survived. You know her. But, uh, but she went through the ice. She climbed out of that, of that ice. Uh, she got, got to the, the sled to the shore. And then she began the trudging painful walk up that hill to encounter the law. (laughs) So she knocks on the door and her mother looks at her and she bursts out laughing and she welcomes Gail in and she hugs her and warms her up and she experiences, Gail experiences something of the gracious welcome of God. My, my theme this morning uh, is that uh, because heaven is satisfied, you are always welcome home. Because heaven is satisfied, you are always welcome home. Remember I said there was a problem that's presented in this text, and it is that the Old Covenant would be found to be obsolete. It would be found to be ineffective, and so it needed uh, to be replaced. And its problem is, it didn't make worshippers perfect. It didn't do that. Look with me at verse 1. Since the law had but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, what it couldn't do is make perfect those who draw near. It couldn't do it. One of the reasons you know that it couldn't do it is because the Day of Atonement rolled around every single year. The priest would lay his hands on one of the goats and convey, communicate the sins of God's people to that goat. He would send another goat out into the wilderness, but obviously it didn't get lost. It came back home because they had to do that same ritual year after year after year. The priests would daily cut up the lambs and the bulls. There would be an endless flow of, of blood proving that sins were not being removed. And then when that priest was finished, he was ready to retire, he would turn his knife over to his son so that the blood rivers could continue to flow. The worshippers in, in Israel got the reality plain and simple. Uh, It didn't make worshipers perfect. Now, what that word perfect means in this context, it didn't cleanse the conscience. Otherwise, verse 2, they would would cease to have been offered since the worshipers. This is how you can tell if something, if an offering is working, if it is perfect, if it in fact cleanses the conscience. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
And what you need to understand about the book of Hebrews, I'm going to condense this really, really uh, as quickly as I can. It's describing the earthly temple and the Aaronic priesthood that God put in place to, uh, to, to manage the sacrificial system. But it is according to, a, it, is a, a, it is after the pattern of heaven itself. In other words, it's, there's a reason why the tabernacle looks the way it does. It is a reflection of, of the spiritual tent or tabernacle in heaven. And so, of course, there would be repeated sacrifices, the blood of bulls and, bulls and goats, but they had a limitation. We see in chapter 9, uh, verse 13, the limitation is this. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer for the purification of the flesh, they, they were offered in order to resolve the problem of ritual purity. Their flesh was cleansed. Their flesh was cleansed. They were able to stay in the community of God. In this, this, they could stay in the camp. They were ritually clean. Now, that is a, a model, a picture of, of the spiritual realities of what Christ has accomplished. Christ entered heaven and was before the very face of God. When he went to the cross, it was really an exercise of going into the heavenlies, the most holy place, and he offered his blood that was sprinkled on the, on the real mercy seat in heaven, and the, and the effect of that is what, something that we've, uh, we were, we're not just bodily and ritually clean, but verse 9, verse 14 of chapter 9 says that we, look what it says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant, or the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what perfection is. Cleansing our conscience from dead works. Look again at verses 24 and 26, the end of that chapter. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, the earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Middle of verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is, this is the language of finality. He's appeared once for all, one time, not annually, not daily, at the end of the ages. This is all that the history has been leading up to, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Everything culminated in the cross of Jesus Christ as he died and his blood would be shed to save his people. The pinnacle of human history. Everything was looking forward to that. The, the fullness of the ages had come. So what does it mean to be perfect? That your cleansed consciences, um, you, it, you know that your sins are no longer a barrier to keep you out of God's house. That, that's, that's really what, what we're talking about. That's perfection. That's maturity. Uh, that's the goal of, of Christ's death. That you would know your conscience would be at peace. I'm welcome in the house of God.
Our call to worship said that from, from 19, 10, 19 and following. We're here. We're here in the presence of God. And we did not become toast. That is a big deal, people. You are welcome in the presence of God. Now, the application of this is, is consider this goal. God is interested in personal, intimate fellowship with you. That's what the cross is about. Bringing you and me, sinners, to become sons and daughters and brought into the family of God for, for intimate fellowship with God. That's the goal. And we know that that goal was thwarted in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were repeated sacrifices that reminded the people of their failures. Repeated sacrifices reminded people of their failures. Do you need repeated sacrifices to remind yourself of your failures? <laughs> no, we do that just fine on our own, don't we? So the problem really hasn't changed for us. The challenge hasn't changed for us. By remembering our failures, we sometimes rob ourselves of fellowship with God. We draw near to God in personal, intimate relationship. He loves you. His love is even warmer than 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 a mother's smile when a child knocks on the door, soaking wet, freezing to the bone because she disobeyed. That's what kind of father you have. He gives that peace of mind. He gives that joy in the heart. And he is always, always ready to hear your humble prayers for mercy. The kind of God we have. Well, this old covenant uh, was declared obsolete. It presents us, it presented Israel with a problem, a problem that we have not escaped ourselves. We have enough accusation going on as our own. But how can we get more firmly rooted in the grace of God? More fully realizing. Well, it's by understanding what God has done to bring this new covenant about. The provision is, listen to this, God will prepare a body. God will prepare a body to get it right this time. Jesus alone would come to do the Father's will. Of course, it's the reason for Christmas. We've got a God-sized problem that only God can resolve. Now, it's note, you may notice that, uh, in, in, that verses uh, 5 through 7 are taken from Psalm 40. And without getting into that uh, too deeply, I just want to say that the Hebrew in, in, uh, in Psalm 40 is, is really saying, ears you have dug for me, not a body you have given me, but ears you have dug for me. And one way to look, think of that is, you've opened my ears so that I can hear and obey you. This is all spoken now from the context of David, all right? all right? You've opened my ears so that I can hear and obey you. But when David's son Jesus um, repurposes this psalm, he says, a body you have prepared for me. And, and, then, and then here, later on in this psalm, Jesus will take, take up these words, I have come to do your will. You've given me a body, and I've come to do your will. And, and that will, of course, was, was first of all becoming one of us. Chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be just like us. And this, of course, is the great mystery of the Incarnation. God made his, gave, gave his eternal Son a body to wear. Who was truly man, as he continued to be truly God, 
two, in, two natures in one person forever, conceived by the Holy Spirit, formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of her, yet without sin, so that he could perfectly fulfill God's holy will. And we want to look at that holy will today in, in, from two perspectives. We're going to, going to use some phrases from theology to sort of as hangers to hang some truths on. The first way that Jesus fulfilled God's will, having had a body now given to him, was, was by his active obedience. Jesus' active obedience. And this refers to, to Jesus' performance of, of obeying the law. The scripture says he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. That means he's a perfect person if he didn't sin with his tongue. James 3 tells us that. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. He was the spotless lamb without blemish. When he was on trial, his enemies had to make up charges, and even Pilate saw that they were bogus. The presiding judges, he's not guilty of these things you're giving. So even the, even the, the, the official in Rome, both the one, the presiding judge here and the one who's at the, at the cross. This, is, this man didn't do anything wrong. All of that testimony to his active obedience. He fulfilled the law for you in your place. Very familiar theology. The second way that he fulfilled God's law, or God's will, uh, was through what is called in theology his passive obedience. His passive obedience. And this points to his work of suffering and work on the cross. Now, it's not the greatest word, passive obedience. It, it sounds like he's doing nothing. But he's not doing nothing. The first thing he did was he agreed that he would lay down his life on his own accord. He decided to do this. He was actively submitting his will to the Father. Peter says that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This whole event of Christ's sufferings and going to the cross was an act of faith and obedience and volition and will. I think it's helpful to understand that, that uh, this, this uh, word passive that we've used is related um, uh, to both the Greek and the um, Latin words for suffering. Suffering, we're talking really about the suffering, the passion of Christ. And even in the language that uh, the writer of Hebrews, I almost said Paul, but I don't think it was, the writer of Hebrews, uh, the language he uses from Psalm 40, talking about the burnt offering, the Jesus, Jesus was fully consecrated to God as that, full, that burnt offering, whole burnt offering was. The whole package was given to God. He was himself the sin offering. Every single sin of every one of you whose faith is in Jesus was paid for on the cross. He fulfilled the sin offering. Did you hear that? Every one of your sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Also then, he's, he's offering this fellowship offering. Jesus entered into heaven on our behalf and he's in, he was in the presence of God 
so that we rejoin him there safely as we are right now, safely in the presence of God. We, we are, the scripture says, spiritually lifted up and in the assembly of, of, of the, the, those souls made perfect in the presence of God. This is the one sacrifice of Christ that creates, that, that uh, affects that eternal redemption, what we call the finished work of Christ. Let, let me read verse 28 again, chapter 9. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. The fullness of the ages has already occurred. The fullness of time has already occurred at the coming of Jesus, at his winning what we could not on the cross for us. Sure, he's coming back. But the one thing he's not doing when he comes back is deal with our sin. Why? Because he's already done that. We are made perfect by his sacrifice. We are no longer conscious of sins that would keep us from fellowship with God. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, awaiting him. And what is the application here? Have you heard the story of the founder, the, the human founder of our denomination, uh, J. Gresson Machen? Uh, the date was January 1, 1937. Our denomination was barely six months old. And he is cavorting off to South Dakota to preach probably before 20 people in an old farmhouse church building somewhere on the, on the windswept hills, the windswept swept plains of South Dakota. Of course he catches pneumonia. Who wouldn't? He's out there, having gone that far to speak to that few people, catches pneumonia, and he knows he's on his deathbed. And he writes one more line. He writes it to his friend, John Murray. And he said, um, I thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He's thinking about this very distinction that we've talked about, the active obedience of Christ. That means I sit here. He was a decent guy. He was a Baltimore kid, brought up in a nice family. He was a great guy. But he knew he wasn't perfect. And he knew that with all the laboring that he did in the early part of the 20th century for the cause of Christ and the truth of the gospel, that's not what he's counting on when he met Jesus. He's not thinking of anything that he's done. He's thinking all only what Jesus has done. If your righteousness for me Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Now, when you face your Savior, uh, will you think about your unrighteousness or will you think about his righteousness? That, that, that's really the question for the day, isn't it? You might think about your righteousness or unrighteousness if you're proud or somewhat of a depressive sort, either one. <laughs> That's the, you're looking away from yourself. And it's all, it's all him. It's all him. The act of obedience of Christ. 
Well, the third point here, then, we have a promise. And the promise is that we are sanctified, or better yet, we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. This is the, this is the, the pinnacle of all that we've been talking about. We've been made perfect, and, and, and the language here is we've been sanctified. The blood of Jesus has brought us this, this, this sanctification. Now, the problem with that is, and I think it's a significant problem, when we hear the word sanctification, what do we normally think about? We normally think about our, the, the battle that goes on in our own flesh, and there is a fight that each one of us is engaged in, chipping away at our bad habits, trying to, to destroy those, those bad attitudes we have, because we've got to make ourselves better. We want to be better. We have so far to go, we realize that. We, we know we should, who here doesn't say, you know, I ought to be a lot farther along than I am. Maybe the older you get, the more you realize that. I don't know. But the old people I talk to sound that way. Like me. Ought to be farther along. And then you could draw the conclusion, well, I'm not sanctified after all. And you look at the mess of your life and you just say, huh, I'm something, maybe God's passed me by in the sanctification department. The battle's raging. Well, that's, the part, that's a problem. That's a problem. What we want to do, though, is see that the, in the scriptures, the primary way that the word sanctification used is used, both here in, in the writer of Hebrews and in Paul, it is not talking about that ongoing life of growing in holiness. It's talking about something else. That's the first thing. Let's get out of our minds that, that the writer here is talking about a process. That uneven, it's like a, it's like a graph. It's kind of like the stock market these days. You know? <laughs> it, it's on its way, on its way across the table. Paul puts it this way. This work is, is you, you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Those are things that happened in the past. In Christ, of course, we understand that the rule of sin has been broken. We think of Romans 6 that speaks about you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are joined to Christ. You don't have to give in to sin and, and all of that wonderful teaching. But that's even a little bit different than, than what is right here. Here you are purified. You are represented in heaven in Jesus' blood dripped on that spiritual mercy seat in the presence of God in heaven. Imagine the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The, priest go, the high priest goes in there once a year. The blood is spilt upon that mercy seat. And that's a big deal for Israel. But they had to do it, as they say, every, every year. Now think of that reality, that, that Old Testament tent, lifted up, and it's really describing what goes on in heaven by Christ, the one sacrifice, and His blood before the face of God. You are represented in heaven by the blood of Jesus. 
And if you, if you are trusting in Him, you are safe and secure in the most holy place in heaven itself. You're not there physically yet, but you are no more you, you are no less secure now than you will be upon your death and your rising. Uh, there was a there was a couple, uh, Tarek and Michelle Mikhail uh, Salahi Salahi, who um, who crashed a, a really great dinner in Washington D.C. at the White House. Okay, somehow or other, they got past the Secret Service, they got past the people you were supposed to show your your invitation to, and they went right on inside, and they are mixing it up with senators and representatives and Supreme Court justice, the president and the wife and the cabinet. They're with all the biggies, and they've got no credentials. What an embarrassment to the social Secret Services. There was no background check. They had shaken hands. They were in the inner circle there. And finally, their identity was exposed and they were, they were e- evicted. What I want you to see, though, is you've got the credentials through faith to be in heaven and never to be convicted. And those credentials are in effect right now. Let's talk about that ongoing faith, that ongoing work of, of holiness for just a moment. That's called progressive sanctification. This, we've definitive so far, but now we're talking progressive sanctification. And that's the ongoing struggle, the uphill battle between flesh and spirit. Paul is wrestling with evil in his own heart in Romans 7. And he says, you're going to have the same trouble. You'll have resident desires that are going to be resistant. But here, listen to me well, people. Here. Let's put first things first the way God does. Look with me at verse 14, chapter 10. I'm going to read it, however, out of the NIV. Paul, uh, the the writer here, is starting with with definitive sanctification, not progressive sanctification. Listen to this verse. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you hear the drama of that statement? By one sacrifice, he has made perfect already. Who? Well, he's made perfect forever already. Who? Those who are being made holy. Now, You, you, you might think you might think that if we're already made perfect, that is acceptable to God in heaven, and no longer consciousness conscious of the sin that that would keep us away from the Lord because Christ's blood has covered that. You might think we'd go out and act like a pig, wouldn't you? That, and that's what Martin Luther that's what Martin Luther called some of the people who heard the gospel for the first time through his ministry, and he realized that they were acting his language acting like pigs, doing whatever they wanted, because oh, I've got this righteousness, I can just I can just coast, I can do what I want. But but the gospel doesn't make you think and act like a pig. It, it, uh, you do not disobey God at a whim. You are not a fake like the Salahis. 
you belong. I'm dripping wet next to my wife as a little girl in her mother's living room with the mercy of God. And you have every right to accept full acceptance in heaven. Now, this is the point of it, though. My, my purpose here, maybe, maybe summarized in this one sentence, you see yourself as made perfect and getting better. How about that one? See yourself as made perfect, but getting better. Let me put it in another way. It is not a sign of humility for you to meditate on your failures. You are not a better Christian if you wallow in your weaknesses. You are not a better Christian if you are proud of your accomplishments as you look down on other people. That's, that's, that's got nothing to do with the Christian life. The more you get it that the Holy Spirit is, in work, is at work in you, the quicker you turn from the scraps the world drops in your lap to the beauties of heaven. When you see and behold the glory of God and you are welcomed into his family, your heart is purified and the the scraps and the sludge and the deception and the ugliness of the things of this world show up in all of their ugliness. You don't stay there. By God's grace, you move forward because you realize you've already been made perfect. And as you look back on that work of Christ on the cross, you find yourself getting better and better. This also changes the way you look at other people. It's possible to look at people. Did you know that there are some people, even in the church, that are annoying? Did you know that? Maybe that's a newsflash to you. But some people can be annoying at times. In your own family, that can happen. Well, how about if we remember this text for them? that they have been made perfect forever whom God is making holy. Ooh, that puts a different slant on it, doesn't it? Sometimes we label, label people, oh, that's just the way they are. They, they, we, we, and, that, and then we can see unbelief as a root of cynicism and even bitterness. But how about if we look around and we say, Jesus is at work. We may even have some patience and compassion for people that we see in the church. And pray God they have patience and compassion with us. See yourself, friends. See yourself as having been made perfect and getting better all the time. Let's pray. Lord, um, we, we thank you for the marvels of Christmas. We thank you for the beauty of your salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you would be working in us a greater, a greater awareness of the present value of the blood of Christ for us today. And we would live for your glory more and more by the power of your spirit. We give you that, we give you that praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.